I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Like any good letter, the letter to the Romans starts with an introduction, and this lesson is our second of three lessons on Paul's introduction to the Romans. So in the first lesson, we considered Paul's greeting and blessing, and that's how you start an introduction. And, and now we're moving on to thanksgiving and prayer. And normally in, in this series on Romans, when we come to a passage, we're going to focus really just on that one passage, doing good observation and interpretation. The, the difference is, is for this introduction. Observing the introduction provides a, a good opportunity to pick up as much as you can about the context of the letter, who wrote it, who received it, what was the purpose. So in the first lesson, I ventured outside of Romans chapter 1 mostly to Acts, to gain more context about the author Paul and about the Roman recipients. In this lesson, I'll again be going outside of Romans chapter 1, uh, primarily to the end of Romans. We can get a lot of context by looking at the beginning and the end of a letter before getting into the meat of the message. Also, in the case of Romans, there are significant parallels between the intro and conclusion, which are going to help us to consider the question of purpose. Since I'm often going to refer to the conclusion— before we read Romans 1, 8 through 15, if you have your Bible with you, you might consider pausing the recording and reading for yourself or skimming over the conclusion, which starts in chapter 15, verse 14, and goes through chapter 16, verse 27. Let's read Paul's thanksgiving and prayer in Romans 1, 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The statement of thanksgiving in verse 8 is quite brief. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's a very positive statement. Knowledge of the Roman community and their faith in Jesus has, has spread. And when, when Paul says to the whole world, I don't think he means to every single individual in the Roman Empire. He's not, he's not saying there's some kind of um, internet news service or you know, media doesn't travel that fast. So certainly non-believers had heard of the faith of, of some of these in Rome. But I imagine Paul's focus is is on Christian churches, that the growing movement of Christian churches in and around the Roman Empire have heard of the growing community of believers in Rome's capital. So at the end of the letter in Romans 16, 16, Paul tells them, all the churches of Christ greet you. By bringing greetings in his letters, Paul encouraged among the churches the perception that each one is part of something much larger than their own local community. And Paul is thankful that the Roman community contributes positively to the growing Christian movement by being an example of faith in Jesus would have been encouraging for churches around the empire 
to know that in the central city, there also existed a fellowship of believers walking with Christ. Paul's mention of the whole world also does not need to include North America or Australia. In context, it communicates that knowledge of the Romans' faith is not limited to the Roman Empire, but has gone beyond its borders, spreading as the church spreads, spilling over the border of the empire into the wider world. The prayer section of the greeting is more extensive than the thanksgiving, taking up verses 9 to 15. Paul lets the Romans know that he prays for them often, even unceasingly, and then he tells them about his personal prayer request that he might come to see them, to have a ministry among them. Paul knows that he has something to offer to the Romans to help strengthen them in their faith, to produce fruit among them, and he longs to be with them so that he can do that. He also feels an obligation towards them as the apostle to the Gentiles. One way to observe this section of thanksgiving and prayer is to consider not only what Paul says, but also how Paul says what he says. In courses on communication and preaching, I was taught to consider three things in my introduction, ethos, pathos, and lagos. Ethos is the speaker's credibility. You're answering the question that your listeners are already thinking, who are you to be talking to me about this topic? Pathos connects the heart, answering on the emotional level the listener's question, why would I want to listen to you? Then Lagos is about the message. Addressing Lagos, the speaker answers the question, what is it you want to talk to me about? What is your topic or message? So a good introduction will include all three of these, ethos, pathos, and logos. Well, the Greeks wrote the book on the art of rhetoric. So ethos, pathos, and logos are all Greek terms. Our understanding of these ideas in communication starts with the Greeks. And we've already noticed in the first lesson that Paul's introduction follows the Greek standard of letter writing, including a Greek blessing, thanksgiving, and prayer. Paul knew how to write a Greek letter, Paul would also have been aware of basic principles of Greek rhetoric. So to gain insight into how Paul communicates, it makes sense to consider how Paul addresses the rhetorical questions of ethos, pathos, and logos in his introduction to the Romans. We'll start with the ethos question, who are you to be talking to us about this topic? Church members familiar with their own pastor usually do not need a lot of convincing in regard to the first part of this question, who are you to be talking to us? You know, they understand he's the pastor. It's his job to preach on Sunday. Usually, church members listening to their regular pastor do not consider the second part of the question either. Who are you to be talking to us about this topic? Though a young single pastor would be very wise to take into account the question of credibility when preaching about how to parent teenagers. So the church members, they know why he's talking to them because he's their pastor but they might be wondering, why are you talking to us about this topic? Why are you trying to tell me how to parent teenagers? In Paul's case, he'd never been to Rome, nor was he involved in pioneering the work of the gospel in Rome. Understanding the importance of ethos, Paul establishes his credibility right from the start of his greeting. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a servant of Jesus and also as an apostle. An apostle is one sent out with a message, and the message for Paul is the gospel. This begins to move into the question of logos. You know, what do you want to talk to me about? What is your message? But clarifying the common ground of a message can also build ethos. You know, I've learned this principle working in partnership with other Christians. We can be excited about plans and strategies and initiatives to care, to witness, to worship, 
and I can I can get excited about all those things, but I'm still going to be a little re- reserved until I know what a potential partner believes about Jesus Christ, about the Bible, and about the gospel of grace. Are we coming from the same central beliefs, the same heart for Jesus? The earlier we can establish that, the better I can then focus on the other details of our partnership. Paul builds this common ground early. He tells the Romans that his message flows out of the Holy Scriptures, and he describes his message as having to do with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is man, Messiah, and God. So Paul's audience in Rome is Christian, so he builds common ground with them from the beginning by affirming the Bible and by affirming Jesus. This this helps establish his credibility with his listeners. Paul further answers the ethos question, who are you to be writing to us about this topic, by clearly communicating his special commission from Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So in verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. He repeats the idea in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And when he concludes the letter, Paul will say in 1515, I have written very boldly to you because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul has unique credibility that no one can really match. When asked, who are you to speak to us on this topic? He responds, I'm the one appointed by Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's my credibility. Establishing that you have credibility to speak to an audience on a particular topic does not guarantee that your listeners will receive your message. They must want to listen to you. Pathos reaches out to the heart, motivating the audience to want to listen. And for me, the most interesting element in how Paul communicates through his introduction is this element of pathos. It's interesting to notice the effort Paul makes to connect not only to the mind, but also to the heart. Priscilla and Aquila, who had worked with Paul and who were now back in Rome, probably looked forward with great eagerness to hear Paul's letter read, not only because of the credibility he held in their eyes, but just as much because of the close relationship they shared with one another. They would have wanted to hear from Paul, both because in their mind they knew him to be a gifted teacher, and also because in their hearts they shared relationship with Paul. They knew his heart. They trusted him. But few of the believers in Rome had any relationship with Paul at all. Paul begins to build relationship by taking time in his introduction to express his feelings for the Romans. He mentions that he prays for them unceasingly. Though he does not know them personally, they're on his mind and they're in his heart. Consider the, some phrases he uses. If perhaps now at last I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you. Often I plan to come to you and I've been prevented thus far. So he uses similar language in his conclusion in 1523. I've had for many years a longing to come to you. Paul goes on to explain that his failure to come to Rome did not have anything to do with personal desire or feeling towards the Romans, but everything to do with God's call in his life. In 113, he explains that he's been prevented from coming to the Romans without explaining what prevented him. We see in the conclusion that it has to do with his obligation to the Gentiles. The same sense of calling, urging him to Rome, also required him to work elsewhere before being free to come to Rome. He explains in 1519, from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. For this I have often been hindered from coming to you. 
he could not come until he finished his work in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. So Paul connects to the heart by communicating his desire to come and by giving the positive reason for why he has not yet been able to come. Paul also connects to the heart by communicating his desire to receive from the Romans. So though he's a skilled apostle with a special commission and years of missionary experience, Paul indicates his belief that he too has something to receive from the brothers and sisters in Rome. He's not just He's not just coming to give to them, but he's, he's coming to receive from them. After writing that he wants to impart some spiritual gift to the Romans, he comments in chapter 1, verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He expects to receive. Similarly, in the conclusion in 1524, he writes, I hope to see you in passing on my way to Spain and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. In both of these verses, in the intro and in the conclusion, Paul communicates two things. He communicates his expectation to receive from the Romans, and he communicates his expectation of encouragement through fellowship of their company. Paul affirms the Romans by acknowledging they too have something to give him, and by stating his expectation to enjoy being with them. So wouldn't that make you feel good to hear the Apostle Paul say, I look forward to the blessing I can gain from you and also to the enjoyment of just being with you. One final observation about pathos comes from Paul's concluding greetings in chapter 16. Paul greets 24 believers by name, along with several groups, households or house churches. It's by far the longest list of personal greetings in any letter from Paul. If Paul has never been to Rome, how is it that Paul knows more people there than anywhere else. Well, most likely, Paul has named here every single person he knew in Rome. You know, writing to the Thessalonians or to the Ephesians, Paul would not be able to, he wouldn't be expected to greet a long list of people. Once you start greeting these people, then you need to greet those people, and he would end up having to greet everybody in the whole church. So greeting all these Romans, he may be recognizing that relationship is often transferable. So acknowledging the relationships he has with several believers in Rome may open up the hearts of others to hear his message. A brother in Rome may have thought, I don't know this Paul, but Priscilla knows him, and so do Ampliatus and Patrobus, and if they approve of him, I guess I do too. Mentioning all these relationships bonded through the work of ministry helps Paul build bridges of both pathos and ethos. You know, it adds credibility and it motivates the heart to listen. The third question should be addre- that should be addressed early in the introduction of a talk or a long letter, especially to an unfamiliar audience, is the question of Lagos. What is the topic of your message? What do you want to talk to us about? Paul's message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he first mentions the word gospel in verse 1, and then he goes on to reassure us in verse 2 that the gospel is centered in Jesus. This whole le- that this whole letter is going to be about the gospel begins to come out in verse 15 when he writes, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then his focus carries into the thesis in verse 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. What Paul is going to say about the gospel is stated in the rest of the thesis, but we're going to look at that next lesson. For now, it's enough to recognize that Paul forecasts to the Romans that the message he wants to give them 
concentrates on the gospel of Jesus Christ. In answering the assumed questions of ethos, pathos, and logos, the skilled communicator Paul prepares the way for his message to be heard. Another question that comes to mind as we interpret Romans, and especially as we've been looking at the introduction and conclusion, is what's the purpose? What are you trying to do through this message, Paul? You've built credibility. You've connected to the hearts of your listeners. You've announced that you want to talk about the gospel. To what end? What do you hope to accomplish? I'll give you four possibilities of purpose, and we we don't need to limit ourselves to one of them. A skilled communicator can accomplish more than one purpose in one letter. The first purpose of Paul's letter to the Romans is introductory. Paul uses Romans to introduce himself to the Romans uh, in preparation of his coming. He, he states directly, I long to see you that I might have fruit among you. So this letter is written to help prepare the way. And while introduction and, and preparation of a future ministry clearly comes through as one of Paul's objectives, it's, it hardly explains the length of Romans. This is Paul's longest letter according to the Greek word count. Why would he write such a long letter if all he was doing was announcing to the Romans his plan to come to them? Certainly there's more to it than that. As a second possible purpose, we also recognize that the letter's missional. This may be hinted at in the introduction when Paul indicates the scope of his calling to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. His his scope is all the Gentiles. The missional intention comes out more clearly in the conclusion when Paul communicates that he's preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum and intends to go on to Spain. Paul's on a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and having completed a stage of that mission in the eastern territory of the Roman of the Roman Empire, he's now ready to turn west. When we read that Paul has preached the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, then we naturally wonder, well, what's Illyricum? Paul's referring to a a Roman province which covered approximately the territory of the Illyrian peoples, and it stretched in the south from modern-day Albania up northwards through Dalmatia in modern Croatia. The Romans are famous for their roads, and one of the more famous roads, the Via Ignatia, began after crossing over the Adriatic Sea from the back hill of the boot of Italy, crossing over the sea to modern city of Duress, which is in Albania, and the beginning at Duress, the Via Ignatia crossed from west to east, so through Macedonia to Thessalonica, on to Byzantium, which is now Turkey's Istanbul. So the road was built to extend Roman control over the area, but the Via Ignatia also served Paul in the spread of the gospel, and we, we know it at least served him in his journey from Philippi down to Thessalonica, Uh, It's not clear how or when Paul took the gospel to Illyricum, but it's possible on his third missionary journey during an unrecorded period in the text that Paul followed the Via Ignatia up to duress and so carried the good news to the border of Illyricum. But having spread the gospel through the Eastern Roman Empire, leaving churches to continue that witness, Paul now has his sights turned on Rome and beyond Rome to the rich fields of Spain. They're rich in wheat and wine and olive oil. Spain is an important Roman possession in the West. So explaining his desire to go there, Paul states for the Romans in 1520 his personal ministry strategy. I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. 
According to this strategy, Paul's not planning to set up shop in Rome. He's not coming to be their new pastor. Um, the gospel foundation has already been laid in Rome. And he, he explains further his plans in fifteen twenty-three to 24. But now, with no further place for me in this regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Paul's vision is to preach the gospel in Rome for the benefit of the already established church and then to continue on to Spain, and he wants the Romans to help him on his way. We can conclude that Romans is the most theologically sound support letter ever written. Paul's asking the Romans to join him in the mission, helping him on the way. Why then go into such a long explanation of the gospel? One reason is to create vision among the Romans, vision for a worldwide proclamation of the gospel. You know, The more excited you are about the gospel for yourself and your own community, the more passion you have for others to know the good news. It's really good news, and we're called to proclaim it. As Paul writes in Romans ten fourteen to 15, how shall they believe in whom they've not heard? And how should they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul wants to proclaim the gospel to all the Gentiles, and he wants fruit. He wants to see the obedience of faith working in their hearts. He's coming to Rome to go to Spain, and he doesn't just want help. He wants to create enthusiastic support and vision among the Romans for the mission. What better way than stirring up their hearts with the gospel and inviting them to join in? This missionary purpose of the letter is clearly stated here in the conclusion, and we can see how an explanation of the gospel through the letter could enhance that invitation to join in Yet we still come back to the same issue as before. Why such a long explanation of the gospel if the purpose is simply to stir up hearts for mission? That could be accomplished with a much shorter letter like like the other letters Paul had written. Another possible purpose of Romans is apologetic. Paul's style and structure indicate that he's concerned with providing a defense for the gospel that he is preaching. That's what apologetic means in this context. Apology is not saying sorry, but providing a defense for what you believe. In regard to style, Paul creates a literary antagonist that he uses throughout the first 11 chapters. The purpose of the antagonist is to raise questions against Paul's argument so that Paul can then answer for us those questions. For example, at the end of chapter 2, Paul concludes that being a Jew outwardly is not what counts, but having a changed heart that leads to obedience, that's what counts. The literary antagonist then asks in chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? It's a good question, one that Paul answers briefly in chapter 3 and then more fully in chapters 9 through 11. In chapter 6, we get the classic criticism of the gospel of grace when Paul's opponent asks, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul's typical short response follows, by no means. Then he gives a longer defense, explaining how it is that grace brings about righteousness. So those are just two examples of the way Paul raises questions against his own message so that he can provide the answers. And this stylistic use of a literary antagonist suggests Paul's purpose is apologetic. He wants to provide a defense for the gospel. The structure of the letter also supports the idea that Paul is making a defense. Chapter 1, 16-17 gives us the thesis 
that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Then in chapters 1 through 4, Paul states the foundational truth of this gospel, that a person is justified or declared righteous through faith when they accept the grace of God in Christ. So that foundational truth of justification by faith raises two major objections, which I I've alerted, I alluded to already in the earlier examples. If righteousness is a free gift, then no one will try to live righteously. That's the major objection Paul addresses in chapters 5 through 8. The second major objection asks, what about the law of Moses in the place of the Jews? If grace matters and not law, then does God show himself unfaithful to his Old Testament promises? That second major objection is addressed in chapters 9 through 11. So, in the argument section of the letter, Paul states his case in chapters 1 through 4, and then proceeds to answer his two major objections, first in chapters 5 through 8, and then in chapters 9 through 11. In this argument section, he's providing a defense of the gospel. That's apologetic. And I've included a chart in the notes at observetheword.com if you want to check that out. Through style using a literary antagonist, and through structure, stating his case and answering major objections, Paul presents a defense or apology for the gospel. Perhaps Paul, who's first going to Jerusalem before Rome and not knowing what's going to happen there, has taken time to write out this defense for the sake of future believers. However, even though there are apologetic elements in the letter, classifying the whole letter as apologetic does not best fit the context nor even the content of the argument. Paul's not using Romans as an occasion for writing a general apologetic tract or a theological tract about the gospel for future believers or or even for present believers in general. Paul's letter to the Romans is contextualized. He's writing to the Roman church, acknowledging them and even addressing in chapters 12 through 14 specific issues that apply to them. Also, when we look closely at the way Paul answers his literary antagonist, we'll see that the answers aren't intended primarily to convince a non-believing skeptic of the validity of the gospel, but to provide deeper understanding for those who've already accepted the gospel as truth. So there's, there's another possibility for purpose, and that fourth possibility is pastoral. Paul has announced his intention to come to Rome to have a gospel ministry among them. Why does he then write such a long letter about the gospel? Well, because knowing that he has this long trip to Jerusalem ahead and not knowing when he'll make it back to Rome, Paul's not content to wait until he gets to Rome. Paul's eagerness compels him to begin preaching the gospel to the Romans in written form. I believe I can best show the pastoral purpose of the letter by bringing your attention uh, to parallel themes in the introduction and conclusion. The themes Paul addresses at the beginning and end, help us to understand what he hoped to accomplish through the letter among the Romans. So not only after arriving, but even before that, through the teaching in this letter. The repeated themes are especially apparent between the, the introduction and the last three verses of the letter. So let's, let's consider those last three verses carefully. So I'm starting in, in verse 16-25 through uh, 27. 16-25 begins... Now to him, Paul doesn't complete that thought until the end of verse 27. So it's now to him, dot, 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 to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. This is the benediction of the letter to the Romans and the overall purpose of Paul's life. To God be the glory through Jesus Christ. Amen.
and packed in between the to him and the to God, Paul repeats four themes that he had already raised in his introduction. They are the center of his message, the continuity of his message, the scope of his message, and the purpose of his message. It's that purpose we want to we want to recognize, but we'll start with the center of the message, which is Jesus Christ. As in chapter 1, verse 2, he repeats here in 1625, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. His gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of the message. The continuity of the message was also affirmed in chapter 1, verse 2, and again here in 1626, by the scriptures of the prophets. Paul's message, now revealed, flows from God's earlier revelation in Scripture. It has continuity with all the covenants and promises that preceded. As with 1.5, the scope of the message is here in 16.26, all the nations. It's a worldwide scope. So the center is Jesus, the continuity is from the Old Testament, and the scope is all nations. The, the repetition at the end of the letter of this center, this continuity, the scope, shows us that Paul's coming back at the close to repeat major overarching themes he indicated at the opening. This is also true in the case of purpose. I'm going to point out two phrases that Paul uses only in the introduction and in the conclusion. He doesn't mention these two phrases anywhere else in the letter, just once in the beginning and once in the end. The first phrase is obedience of faith. So we also talked we already talked about that in the last lesson. It's in chapter 1 verse 5. Well, we see it again in chapter 16 verse 26. The gospel has been made known to all the nations leading to an obedience of faith. Paul desires to see a transformation in the lives of Gentiles, a transformation that flows out of faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the overall structure of the letter to the Romans. First, we have the gospel message in 1 through 11, and then gospel practice in 12 through 15. So deep understanding of that gospel message of true faith in Jesus Christ, chapters 1 through 11, leads to life transformation or true obedience as described in chapters 12 through 15. So obedience of faith. We we need an ever-increasing understanding of our faith that we might have ever-increasing practice of our faith. Paul's not content to begin that process with the Romans until after he's arrived among them. He starts the process with this letter. With the eager heart of a pastor, Paul explains the gospel to change the way the Romans think and the way the Romans live. That's the purpose of the letter, life change among the Romans. That purpose is confirmed in the second phrase, repeated only in the introduction and conclusion. Not really a phrase, but a word. In 111, Paul says, I long to see you that you may be established. And in 1625, he writes, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Instead of establish, your Bible might have strengthened. So as in the ESV, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And in chapter 16, now to him who is able to strengthen you. The Greek word means strengthen, establish, confirm, or support. That's what Paul is about here, to strengthen or establish the Romans by the written preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, 
Paul's eager to preach the gospel to the Romans, who he has already called beloved of God and saints. So nowhere in the letter does Paul question the orthodoxy of Roman belief or the reality of their faith. So of course Paul wants to preach the gospel to non-believers. That's why he wants to go to Spain. But we see here in the letter to the Romans, he also recognizes the importance of preaching the gospel to believers. Two things I have noticed in Christian ministry about the need to preach the gospel to those who have already believed. First, I've noticed a fuzziness among believers about the core truth of the gospel. I saw that Recently I saw this. I taught at a Christian conference in another country where I had the opportunity to get into a conversation with a young Christian woman who had uh, just completed Bible school, and she was able to share with me her experience of coming to faith in Christ, and I, could, I, I really believe I sensed a genuine relationship with Jesus. As we continued in conversation, I asked her how would she answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? And I, I found it interesting that she really struggled to answer the question. I was pleased that she and another participant made an appointment with me later to talk about how to answer that question. It showed a you know a heart to learn. Um, what I've noticed is that many Christians who are walking in a living relationship with Jesus struggle to communicate clearly the how of the gospel. They know it has to do with sin and grace, but often the answer is a bit fuzzy. It's not pre- precise or specific or confident. There's this struggle to explain why Jesus had to die and what his death and resurrection specifically accomplish. And if you have trouble communicating concepts that have to do with the gospel, that suggests you could benefit from closer examination and teaching of the gospel to better understand your faith. The second thing I've noticed is how good evangelical churches and movements can be at communicating grace to non-believers, and yet how poor at living out grace in Christian community. We're better at offering grace to outsiders while often requiring law from those who are on the inside. This is not surprising. Human nature and human society are legalistic. We know no other way. Grace is counterintuitive and countercultural. And though the gospel message is simple and understandable, really available to all, that does not mean it's easy to apply. There's some deep work that has to happen in us if we're to live out the gospel, work that takes time and some struggle. The gospel message is elegant. It can be faithfully expressed in terms simple enough for a child to receive and yet speak with power into the deepest nature of God and man. I I love the booklet I use to share the gospel with people. Even, Even if I don't use the booklet, I have the outline memorized in my mind and I have an app on my phone and it's simple and it's biblical and it's powerful and it helps me present the core truths of the gospel message in a clear way. And while I love using a simple presentation of the gospel, I do not want my understanding of the gospel to remain simplistic. So this is what I love about the letter to the Romans. It's not simple or simplistic. As we, as we maintain the simple expression of the gospel, Paul is challenging us to think more precisely, more deeply about gospel truth and how that true plays out in gospel living. Paul wrote Romans to introduce himself to the Romans, to invite the Romans to join in the mission to the nations, to answer some of the challenging questions proposed by skeptics. But when asked, why did Paul write Romans, the whole long message from beginning to end, I answer, Paul wrote Romans from the heart of a pastor who believes in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
as a pastor who recognizes that believers need to be pushed to go deeper into their understanding of the gospel, to be established in their faith, strengthened for transformation. That's why Paul wrote Romans, and that's why we study Romans. We put in some tough work of observation and interpretation to go deeper into gospel truth so that we as individuals and churches would have our worldview shaped by the gospel and our lifestyle transformed by the gospel, and we do it for the glory of God. It's not just about us. It's about faithfully representing the glorious gospel of our Father in heaven and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.